Welcome to the PID webinar, folks. Uh, today, I'm very excited about this webinar because this is a subject that goes back to my childhood. When we were young, we used to travel on the trains and honestly, it was a delightful journey. Uh, loved traveling on the trains. Um, the whole family used to travel by train and it was absolutely um, beautiful hearing the music of the rails, you know, taka tak taka tak we kept going. It wasn't a very fast rail, but it was comfortable. It was quite nice. Enjoyed it. I've traveled in every cabin of the railways. Um, but over the years, as many of you know, the mess that we've made, uh, railways is now bleeding in every direction. I don't think there is any direction. Our experts will tell us. I know nothing about it, but I don't think there's any direction in which the railways is not bleeding. How did this come to pass? Um, I have no idea. That's what I call this webinar for. All I know is that our intellectuals, think tanks are amiss. We have written nothing on railways. We know nothing about railways. So I thank my good friend Amir Durani from Reenergia. Amir Durani has this firm called Reenergia. He combined with us, collaborated with us to do this webinar today. So Amir is really the architect of this webinar because Amir also helped I worked in the World Bank and helped the Planning Commission design a railway reform project in 2010, which unfortunately, like everything else in this country, was still born. We never really took it anywhere, but any, in any case, Ahmed did the hard work and he has it. Now, somewhere in the 70s, 80s, we began a romance with the car. So after my family switched from the railway to the car. And then along came uh, Mr. Sharif and we developed a, a romance with the roads. So now we have, Richard, we've paved Pakistan almost out of agriculture. And if we can help it, there will be no agriculture in Pakistan. There will be only roads leading everywhere. We are building roads if there's no tomorrow. We're going to overtake the US in building roads. But then along came the IFC, and in its infinite wisdom, financed and pushed for the NLC. NLC took away all the freight of the railway. So passengers, we left because there were roads, and the freight left because IFC pushed for NLC. And uh, now I think railway is merely an employment agency. Um, you know, our experts will tell us. But still, it's not a poor agency. It is a huge amount of capital. It is probably the largest land bank in the country next to the government. It has a huge land bank, which, is which it does nothing with. Oh, except they make their own houses. They have lovely houses. You know, gardens, we used to play a lot out there when I was a kid. It's a lovely place. All railway houses. I've been to railway colony in Multan and Pindi. The railway colonies are beautiful. So like the civil service, the railway also does well for itself because the land is used well for their houses, but not for capital, as you might expect. But then they also have no autonomy. So what do you do? There's professionalism in the railways is dying. I had an uncle in the railways, and uh, he was a very proud professional, knew the railways backwards, knew every little uh, junction. But now I don't know what the situation is. I don't hear good things about it. So I don't have much to say about the railways. I just want to introduce the topic and I want to introduce our speakers. We've got a great panel who will tell us all about the railways. I'm waiting to be educated. I really want to be educated on this today. So we've got Mr. Richard Bullock, um, Bullock, sorry, Richard Bullock, who has been a transport engineer um, in many places, including advisor to the Australian government, the prime minister. He's advised the Australian government on, on, on transport. He's advised the World Bank on transport. He's a well-known international player. He's worked in Pakistan for many years, so he knows the Pakistan railways very well. Then we got Mr. Ashfaq Khatak. 
who has been uh, associated with the railways, probably one of the last professionals left in the railways, who um, ran railways for a while, but they never really complete his, let him complete his job. He knows railways very well. He's an excellent man. So I think he'll tell us a lot. Then, of course, Ahmed Durrani, who is um, the organizer of this panel. And he, as I said, has done this railway study for the uh, World Bank, and he has now extended it for us. BID has requested Amir, and Amir has put in his uh, time and given. A, he's going to give us a very good study that we'll publish because I think, quite frankly, as I started, our universities are a mess. We do nothing on the railways, so our intent at the BID is to at least have one or two studies out on the railways, and we will ask all three of our panelists, if they can give us any paper studies, et cetera, we would like to publish them in the PID because PID must become a repository of information on economics and railways is a very important economic entity employing a large amount of people, largest transport network, et cetera, et cetera. So ladies and gentlemen, with that short introduction, I'll ask Richard Bullock to explain um, railway situation here through an international context to us. Richard, the floor is yours. Educate us, please. Okay. <clears throat> well, thank you very much. And um, as you said, uh, I have been to um, Pakistan a few times. The first time was in the 1990s and uh, then several times in the 2000s. Um, what I'm going to talk about uh, this evening, I have 15 minutes, I've prepared some slides covering the main features of the railways over the last uh, two or three decades. Uh, I won't go through every item of detail in the time I have, but uh, I think the, the presentation uh, will be generally available. Most of it is taken from the Pakistan Railways Yearbook, which for those of you who don't know it, is an absolute gold mine of information. Uh, it has uh, a lot of statistics, a lot of information, which if you look at it carefully, you can, um, you can detect all sorts of trends. And of course, it's been published essentially in the same format <clears throat> for many, many years. I actually have some that uh, are 20 years old, and uh, I'm referring to them quite often. So I'm going to talk about four things. First of all, what's the background to PR? Why is it in, what has happened to it over the years? The second thing I'm going to talk about is governance, which I think is one of the most important factors in uh, <clears throat> why PR finds, it, finds itself in the situation it's in. The third thing I'm going to talk about is PR as a business. What, what's, what's it doing with traffic? Is it growing? Is it, uh, is it falling? What's happening, with, um, what's happening with tariffs? What's happening with labor and productivity? And how does it compare with other railways in the region and more broadly? And lastly, what about the finances? And then I'll finish by just summarizing some of the key points, which I think other speakers will probably develop. Uh, further. So, first of all, PR, it's had a series of ups and downs, and it's mostly downs over the last 40 or 50 years. Its real nadir 
was between 2011 and 2015. And I was not working in Pakistan at the time, but it was clearly placed on a starvation diet and uh, freight almost disappeared. And, and that had a severe effect on its finances. But it's now recovering. Uh, passenger traffic is pretty strong. Freight traffic, thanks to the, um, to the coal, is growing. And its finances, although not wonderful, are better than they were. But there's an awful long way to go before it's going to become a sustainable business. In other words, a business that will be able to manage itself in the long term. And uh, the problem with the finance is that when you're short, when you're short of finance, really the only thing that you can cut back on is maintenance, because your labour is fixed, your fuel is fixed, and so maintenance gets postponed, it gets deferred, and you can do that for one year, you can do that for a couple of years, but over time you end up with a maintenance crisis. And PR has had plenty of those. So next slide, thanks. So governance. Now, what does governance mean? It, it means the institutional arrangements between the railway and the government and between the railway and the agency that is, we could say, charged with immediate supervision of it. So what the PR yearbook says, and it says it's a federal government department under the Ministry of Railways. And the secretary of MOR is the ex officio chairman of the railway board. Well, if we were 30 or 40 years ago, this would be exactly the same arrangements as most railways around the world. But very few nowadays have that structure. There are, I only know of three or four ministries of railways surviving, most in South Asia. And of course, India is the biggest. But even China abolished the Ministry of Railways. And the Ministry of Railways in China was an incredibly powerful organization. It was a state within a state. And yet, even in China, the government eventually decided that uh, there was no future in having it as a separate uh, organization. And it was amalgamated, or at least the uh, policy side uh, was amalgamated into the Ministry of Transport. And so the, uh, the main aim there is to separate the government's governance role from the business management. In other words, the, the policy, the uh, the overall management is one thing, but the actual day-to-day -day running of the railway is quite another. And the railways in these countries have generally been reconstituted as a state-owned company or corporation, <coughs> a corporation generally first, and then a company uh, if, uh, that, if the corporation works. And those, that would then have well-defined aims, specified management freedoms, and most importantly, an independent board. 
with qualified people on the board, not just uh, people who are friends of friends who think it's a nice place to, uh, you know, get a bit of money, but an independent board where people with professional skills uh, are selected and appointed. In some railways, but this is not, this is not uh, absolute. Uh, the private sector has been given defined rights, but that doesn't have to be the case. But uh, as you'll hear later, I think that uh, for freight services, it's uh, it's an important thing to consider. And the final step is financing. It's been very common for railways to have what are called deficit financing. In other words, they just get provided with the money that's the gap between what they earn and what they have to spend on a cash basis. This is, uh, in my experience, this is a very depressing business to try and run. Because all that happens if you improve things is you get less money in the deficit finance. And the government's idea of what you need in order to run the railway is almost inevitably a lot less than what is actually needed. So now let's turn to passenger. So passenger traffic's grown steadily over the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, the number of passengers has fallen sharply, but passenger kilometers, which is a much, is a much better indicator, overall indicator, of the business. In other words, it's the number of passengers times the distance they travel. That has grown sharply and is currently, as far as I can see, about the biggest it's ever been. Um, at the same time, you can see in the bottom graph that the average haul has grown sharply. Um, tariffs, surprisingly to me, have uh, managed to stabilize over the last two or three decades. They've gone up and they've gone down, but overall they seem to have balanced out. Um, I used uh, consumer price index as the deflator there. I'm sure the economists will be able to find a better measure, but um, when I tried to get the GDP deflator out of uh, the various series that are available, I got nonsense numbers. So if we move to freight, can we have the next slide, please? Right. So freight has fluctuated, but it's now increasing again. So you can see that the, the freight ton kilometers, which is the brown line in the top slide, that had a massive reduction, 2011 to 2015. And this was a period which, in which uh, PR was really, as, uh, as far as I know, it was really starved of funds. It was short of locos, had virtually no rolling stock with which to run freight services. In fact, in some years, uh, that tra traffic there includes, which includes both uh, revenue traffic for third parties, as well as the traffic it was carrying for itself, the majority was its own traffic. So it was carrying almost no traffic for, for uh, customers outside the railways. 
that had an impact on um, the tariff because it was charging a lot for its own tra traffic because, of course, that goes against capital. Uh, and you can see that in the bottom graph that the average yield had a sharp uptick in that particular period. But when you look at um, tariffs overall, well, they've gone down a bit in real terms. They've gone down quite a lot in what they were in the, in the mid-90s. But uh, it's not been a disaster. If we can move to the next one, thanks. So how does PR traffic compare internationally? Well, since I'm talking, since you're all economists, I thought I'd do the sort of thing that economists draw. I'm trying to compare India and Pakistan and Sri Lanka. And India is so big, I've drawn the traffic graph on a logarithmic scale. So, uh, I've, but I've put the, the actual numbers in it so you can see what they would be. But just bear in mind that on the left-hand side, if you go up one interval, it's 10 times as big. So if I'd drawn an ordinary graph, you'd have uh, India somewhere off the top of the screen and you'd have the others way, way down at the bottom. But you can see that Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, they're comparable. Uh, of course, Pakistan is bigger, um, but India swamps uh, Pakistan. Now, of course it does, you know, Half that freight traffic is coal. There's another great chunk there that is steel and uh, related inputs. So it's got, uh, it, it, although it's carrying all that traffic, the amount of pure, what, I, what you might call consumer goods, general freight, is not actually that much greater on a, uh, on a size basis. The bottom graph compares the tariffs. Now, the blue is what the passenger tariff is if you do a straight conversion on the what, 160, uh, I don't know what the conversion rate is exactly now, about 150, something like that to the dollar. Uh, the red is if you do it on what's known as a purchasing power parity basis, which is for Pakistan, is about uh, a third or a quarter of what the uh, the uh, currency uh, direct currency is, and this is generally a better way of comparing passenger fares in different countries, because uh, it, it's a, it's really comparing the passenger fares against the basket of goods that an individual is buying. The black is the freight rate, and that again is converted. At a, uh, at a on a direct basis. And I, I think, personally, uh, I think that's the best way of comparing freight rates because uh, all the other inputs that industries are uh, paying for, most of them, other than labor, will be uh, close to world <coughs> prices. The two dotted lines uh, are well, they're not quite averages, they're medians, but we can say they're typical figures for passenger and freight on those on that basis for, it was actually about 80 developing countries around the world. It was some work I did for the World Bank. So you can see that um, 
freight, uh, Pakistan is uh, is really a bit low. Uh, and on the passenger, Pakistan is the highest of the four South Asian countries. But that's still a long way below what uh, these other developing countries um, uh, are charging. So if I can go to the next one, please. So what about labor productivity? Well, labor's come down over the years, 120,000, 130,000 in the 70s. We're now down to about 70,000. And uh, of course, part of that is due to technological change because uh, in the 60s and 70s, there were steam engines, which are quite labor intensive. And uh, now you've, uh, you're all diesel. We normally measure labor productivity as in terms of traffic units per employee. Now, a traffic unit is the sum of passenger kilometers and net ton kilometers. It's, um, it's one of those indicators which you can argue about a lot, but in the end, there's nothing much that's any better. So it's the best of a bad lot. And it's the most common one that is used in railway analysis. Um, and I've, I've plotted the productivity there. And you can see it's got up to about 400,000 traffic units or, or more uh, per employee. This is, uh, you know, middling. It's, uh, it's not hopeless, but really it's not so great. And you can see in the bottom graph there, I've compared the productivity with the other railways in South Asia. Of course, China, uh, India is well ahead of the field, but this is due to its uh, bulk traffics and then also the extraordinary number of passengers it gets in most of its trains. Um, Pakistan, curiously to me, came out slightly behind Sri Lanka. Uh, but Sri Lanka's got almost no freight these days. And it's ahead of Bangladesh. To get some idea of where Pakistan sits against other countries, um, Malaysia is about 650, something like that. Thailand is the same sort of level. Vietnam is about uh, two or three hundred, I think. So Pakistan is not hopeless, but it's uh, there's room for improvement there. But of course, you must remember that labor productivity is a function of capital investment in labor saving uh, equipment. If you've got modern equipment, you need fewer men. Of course, those men also, people, I should say. Of course, those people also need to be uh, more skilled than they were in the past. So uh, the whole issue of labor productivity is also uh, <coughs> combined with wage rates, and it's combined with capital investment, and it's also associated with, um, uh, uh, with skill levels. If we can just go to the next. Thank you. So this is my 
venture at uh, analyzing the operating expenditure. So the first thing is that what PR terms operating expenses isn't what I would normally call operating expenses because uh, it doesn't include anything for depreciation. And uh, of course, Pakistan's not al alone in having uh, very strange depreciation. The depreciation in Pakistan is negligible. And um, in India, it's not much better. It's, it's not depreciation as any normal accountant would understand it. And the other thing that's not in the operating expenses is pensions. So first, before I go into those in a bit more detail, when you look at the revenue and expenditure, uh, up until the early, well, up until around 2000, revenue was greater than expenditure. Of course, it was then swallowed up in the pensions at the time. I, I, I remember when I was uh, working in PR that uh, there was this enormous lump sum from pensions. And then money was lent to the railway to cover this and so on. Loans, interest, disaster. You can see that now revenue and expenditure as defined in operating expenses are not so far apart. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a chance that it could get quite close. Between 2011 and 2015, there was a big gap. And this is directly related to the very, very low freight traffic that was being carried at that time. So let me just turn to the pensions. So one of the uh, problems in the railways is that the pension is a covers everyone who ever worked for the railways. So there will be people who, who were working for the railways during the Raj who are still sitting somewhere in up in the hills somewhere and receiving a living a, a life on a very healthy diet of uh, fruit and open air and they will still be they will be getting a pension which was never allowed for, never accounted for at the time. And so there is this large amount, which was about 30 billion rupees in 2018, which has to be found somewhere. You, you can't do it from the current, the current uh, operations of the railways. The pensions have just got, people are living longer, they get pensions but much, much longer than was ever envisaged years ago. And so what is happening now, as far as I can see, I'm not, I don't know for certain, but there appears to be a special payment from the government to cover those uh, pensions. But I'm sure uh, others uh, this evening will know more about this. And the other thing is all capital, because there's, there's no depreciation, but all capital renewal and additions are being financed by the government, as far as I can see. And in 2017-18, that was 22 billion. So what you've got is 50 odd billion coming from the government, at least according to the yearbook. And you had somewhere around 50 odd billion coming from the customers. And uh, so the total 
the total uh, requirement for the railway uh, in that year was about double what's down as operating expenses. Perhaps we could just go to the next. So very quickly, how is freight making money? Is passenger making money? This is the one thing you can't find from the yearbook. But it's possible to do some sums from the information that's provided. And that in that graph, uh, that diagram at the top left, is my best estimate of to, as to how passenger and freight are doing and how infrastructure is doing. Of course, infrastructure gets no money. But you can see that passenger, in my sums, is covering its operating, its, it, the cost of running the trains. But what it's not doing is the cost of buying new rolling stock so it can continue running the trains. So it's covering what you might call its short-term costs, but not its long-term costs. Freight, on the other hand, as far as my calculations go, and I'm sure PR could do a better job of this, uh, freight is covering both its running costs, its operating costs, day-to-day -day operating costs, and it's also covering what I would allow for the capital. So it's okay. It'll keep, it can keep going. It all depends what it's got to pay for infrastructure. And you can see on the right-hand side that there is quite a lot to pay for infrastructure. And the surplus of the blue over the brown in the, in the passenger and the freight just, to makes, just about makes up for the deficit of the blue to the brown in infrastructure. So this is an important thing to remember, especially if you're thinking about what might happen if private sector comes into freight, because the private sector can almost certainly finance its own trains, but that, that surplus that freight is making, it's not going to be available to the uh, the rest of the railway unless there is some access charge which is going to recover that surplus. So next please. Uh, and the next again. So just some takeaways. It's got growth potential but there are many issues that need to be addressed if you're going to achieve this in a sustainable way. And I don't mean, I, I just mean with sustainable in a way that is, going, that is going to allow PR to be operating in 10 years time, 20 years time, whatever, without yet another crisis. So first and foremost, it, institutional arrangements were very common 50 years ago, but almost all state-owned railways outside, outside South Asia have since restructured. Passenger demand is high, and it will get more if ML1 is completed. But what are you going to do about fares? Because as demand grows, you're going to need more rolling stock. So you don't have enough money, in at least in my sums, to be able to pay for that unless the government provides it. Freight demand, it's increasing and it's promising. It could cover its operating costs and rolling stock provision, contribute to infrastructure, but my 
experience in other countries has shown that state railways such as PR struggle to compete in competitive freight markets. So if the private sector is going to be allowed or is going to come into the freight sector, into the freight business, then PR is going to have to reorganize itself big time if it's not to be slaughtered. Labor productivity by itself is not the worst, but it's not that fantastic either. And of course, the private sector will be much better, but then they'll pay more. If you pay more, you get better skilled people and you can do more with less. And with its operating costs, uh, I think historic pensions, they've got to be dealt with some, somewhere else, but it's got to provide for pensions for its current staff. And something needs to be, some thought has got to be given to the capital expenditure. So I'm sorry there, I've overrun my 15 minutes by quite a long way, but um, anyway, um, I'll pass it back to you now. Thank you, thank you, Richard, thank you. No, it was, it was very useful. I learned a lot. I think it's, it's uh, great to see uh, the mess that we made. Now let's go to Mr. Ashfaq Khatak. Ashfaq Saab, can you please tell us, do we have a railways or do we have ministries that are playing railways or do we have something that we can call a Pakistan railways? Well, just uh, uh, thank you. Thank you, thank you. You talked about uh, your nostalgic uh, connection with the railways. Imagine me here who spent almost 35, 40 years in the railways. And here we are talking of railways again. So it's all nostalgia, but uh, I'll be I won't be giving you details here. Actually, as told by Durani um, Saab, that here we need to talk about what the railways is today, what has happened in the past. So I'll not be giving you uh, what needs to be done. And I won't uh, sort of bore you with a lot of details and um, figures and all that. Uh, I'll just be make it a little simple and tell you what railways is. But I'll talk of trains and I'll talk of railways. Okay. So uh, basically it, it is uh, my own analysis of what has happened, what, uh, why we are in this position. Uh, personally, when you look at railways I, uh, for the last 30, 40 years, the way we are sitting today, had we done this same exercise 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, I think it's the same talk. We, we would be talking the same uh, um, things that we are talking today. <clears throat> Nothing has changed. It is just going up and down, up and down, uh, as Richard very correctly said. Uh, nothing has happened. And we are in this, the railways is still the same. So the same talk, if you pick up uh, 20 years ago, you will find that people are talking the same thing. So now uh, I'll be talking of four basic uh, uh, things. One is the, uh, just to let you know what the railways is, Pakistan Railways, uh, Richard explained it, but I will uh, give it to you in my words. Look at the infrastructure and the rolling stock and the human resource. Now these are the three assets which all railways have in common. This is not rocket science. Then we will uh, look at the uh, reforms and the restructuring attempts that were made during the last three decades. And I'm saying attempts. Nothing happened, frankly, very frankly. 
with all the good intentions, uh, little has happened. And that is why we are in the state that the railways you find today. I'll also talk of the policy issues and the institutional and governance issues. Um, since uh, the ministry is there, and Richard very correctly said that whether it should be there or it should be there. Since it is, since it is there, it is a cause of most of the problems that we are discussing today. Then I'll talk of pure railway economics and traffic analysis. And when, when I talk of traffic analysis and railway economics, it is all about train operations. If you can operate your trains in a, in a, in a, in a viable manner, in a proper manner, in an efficient manner, I really don't see any reason why the railways should not be financially viable, even today. So the traffic is there, whether it is passenger traffic or freight traffic. I personally feel the, the new studies that we did when I was heading the uh, ML1 uh, and the CPEC frame, framework, the forecasting was so good that the future looks very hopeful, provided, of course, we go ahead and do a lot of things. So now this railways, Pakistan railways, when you look at it internationally, it is a medium-sized railway. It has done well in certain years, uh, but it has not utilized those assets. And what are the assets? The assets are the infrastructure, the rolling stock, and the human resource. When you make use of them, that is how you operate trains and how you operate trains in a, a more commercial manner. It has never been commercial. Then the Pakistan Railways is part of Pakistan. We inherited the railways, what it is today, it was one eighth part of a bigger railway. And it was never meant for the purpose that we then after partition, when it started uh, working as an independent railways, we have used that same railway, the one eighth part for our own purpose, never realizing that we should improve it and improve it in certain ways or make good use of those assets. Then the National Trade Corridor, 2000 kilometers. I think this is ideal for any, any long distance railway, any good railway network. Uh, I'm sure Richard will uh, bear me out in this. It is not a small country. In a smaller country, maybe like Belgium or maybe like Rotterdam in, in Netherlands, or maybe you don't need the freight trains. In Japan, there are no freight trains. Now here is a railway in a corridor where the freight is good and the passenger is also good. And for, for this kind of a system, you need a good, robust, strong railway network, which unfortunately uh, we could not uh, maintain or could not improve. Now, when you look at Pakistan railways, again, look at the connectivity, we are connected to Afghanistan, which is a land, landlocked country. Even Afghanistan in isolation can give you all the good economics and the good good figures if you even uh, work for Afghanistan. So it is connected to Iran at Taftan and it is connected to uh, Vaga, India. Of course, with India, we have our own problems. But when you look at the railways from the railway point of view, from the transportation point of view, that's a very good corridor. Kokrapar is a very good corridor. A lot can be done. A lot of earnings can be made. So we are well connected. And of course, with China coming in through CPEC, we will be connecting to Hunjrab, uh, China via Hunjrab, hopefully. That is why there's a question mark. Next. 
Now, <clears throat> the, these are now, uh, I call them just dead statistics. They look very good, but we've made uh, little use of them. About 7,600 kilometers of, of uh, track, which on the face of it, it looks very good. But when you go on ground, the entire infrastructure is aging. Of course, it is 150 years old, but nothing has been done about it. The bridges, the, the, the fastenings and fittings and everything, they are aged and they need to be replaced to have a good railway system. Signaling system, obsolete in some places. We have the best in the world, um, but mostly it is obsolete. And uh, the processes and equipment for, for maintenance, again, outdated. Now, where the track is not supposed to be touched by the human hands, we don't have any machinery, although the, the track design and the track structure and the track geometry is such that it needs to be done by machine, we don't have them. So it, again, the human element is there. Now, uh, the main line one, which we call, which is, uh, we, we, we were trying to upgrade that with China. Now this is the sixth year that plan is going on. Nothing has happened. Hopefully it'll come up. That the speed is 110 kilometers per hour, ML2 and ML3, again, in a bad shape, maybe 55, 50, 60 kilometers in places, even 15 kilometers per hour. From Quetta to Taftan, where we are connecting to Iran, the speed of the train is 15 kilometers an hour. That reminds me, uh, Nadeem Sa, the last day of my working as chief executive, we were having a meeting with uh, the president in Bilawal House. If you remember, you were there, the Turkish ambassador was there, and we were talking of upgrading Taftan. And the Turkish government and the Iranian government were very anxious to do it because there's a lot of freight traffic. But believe me, it is still the same at 15 kilometers, 10 kilometers per hour. Again, on the, on the other asset, which is the rolling stock, aged locomotives. We have had locomotives coming in, but these are just spasms coming in, not a regular kind of uh, induction of new locomotives. So once they come, things look good. Once they get old, the maintenance is not there things start going bad again, as is the situation these days. I frankly feel that uh, all this, you can call it a story of deferred maintenance. Deferred maintenance on the part of the infrastructure, deferred maintenance on the part of uh, rolling stock, and a deferred maintenance and capacity, lack of capacity building on the human resource side. And that is why we are in this situation today. But uh, the maintenance of rails, vehicles, again, very not something to write home about. Next. Now, this is just to show you the map of the network. It looks very good. Every place is connected. Iran is connected. India is connected. Afghanistan and even China or through Khonjarab. And the network looks good. But on ground, uh, it is not very good. It, it doesn't look like a good railways here, except for ML1. Next. <clears throat> now, just let me tell you what has happened during the, it's not that we've been sitting and doing nothing, but the problem here I see is uh, the railway itself did not start 
any of these reform processes. Somehow they came from outside, whether it was the World Bank or the Asian Development Bank or some other bodies. In, uh, so it was uh, not owned by the railways. Like, uh, and I was told maybe that I had to talk of 30 years back, so I didn't go back very long ago. The World Bank, uh, Richard mentioned that the uh, reduction in the employees from 130,000 to 75,000 today is because of technology. I would like to differ here. And it is not because of, nothing has happened because of technology or because of the steam uh, changing from steam locomotive to um, diesel electric or to others. It is only because of the World's Bank, one covenant of the World Bank, where it said no more, no more recruitment and luckily that is one good point which the railways adhered to and, and, and followed. And from 1989 onwards, about 3,000 to, 3, to uh, 3,500 and sometimes 4,000, sometimes 2,000 people retired every year. And that way we achieved this, uh, this uh, figure of reduction in staff. So that was the biggest factor from my point of view. In the uh, early 90s, we had the oil movements, um, the, the concept of recourse, these new companies. So there was a reform process going on. Um, some very good people were involved. I was also one of those junior chaps who was involved in the open access policy. But at that time, nothing happened. And this was a, a very good policy for the railways to open up to the private sector and allow the private sector to come in in a big way on their own locomotives on their, uh, on their own freight wagons and run oil trains, at least start. The start was supposed to come from oil. They could have done it in other, other uh, commodities like fertilizer, cement, or general cargo, or anything else, containers for that matter. But it didn't take off. A lot of work was done on this. I think the World Bank did it a lot. Then there was the, uh, in the, uh, in the um, late 90s, in 97 and 98, there was a push from the world to get into corporatization, make it a corporate body, nothing happened. And what happened is they came up with the idea of having three companies, separate companies, one for the infrastructure, one for the passenger, one for the freight. Now the railway people were never involved in this. Let me tell you, they were not part of it. They didn't own it. So it went for a six and the railways went so bad that uh, the, the dips that you uh, Richard was showing in those on these figures, the one of those dips is because of this. And it was a complete disaster, frankly, from that point of view. In 2000, the army took over, if you remember, and railways also, the army military people came in a big way into the railways and they just did away with the, the uh, restructuring process and went back halfway to the old system. Next. Um, this was a time when Pressler Amendment was in place. So there was nothing coming into the railways. Luckily, the Chinese were willing to give us suppliers credit and we purchased at that time uh, locomotives and freight wagons, their coaches. And that then, for a very short time, by the way, the life of a locomotive is about 20 years. The life of a passenger coach is about 35 years. But that short for that short period, the operating ratio for the first time went 
from red to black on on paper from 2007 onwards again up to 2010 when i unfortunately unfortunately took over as the chief executive of railways this was the time when the railways went into complete nose dive and uh, this was the time when somehow from the policy i'm going to explain that uh, from the policy level things went haywire policy formulation was not good the, everything went bad and the deficits went into 30 billion 35 billion and 40 billion then in uh, december 2010 uh, doc sahab i think you were there at that time and the same finance minister was there uh, we came up in fact i was the chief executive at that time we came up with the a revolutionary idea of closing 120 passenger trains unheard of that decline that richard was showing it went nose dive i am surprised that nobody was bothered bothered as to why we are going down in in, in such a in such a way uh, when the traffic was analyzed these trains these 120 trains were bleeding the railways and and bleeding the railways to death so luckily the cabinet approved it but again due to political reasons we could manage to close down only 20 to 25 of them the rest the political people were not willing in spite of the fact that these trains were completely loss making they were not uh, sort of facilitating the public because then nobody was going nobody was paying so as such this happened next then 2011 to 13 14 this was the worst period of the railways when there was no traffic freight traffic at all at all most probably the total traffic that they carried during the year was less than, uh, less than 1 million tons and most of it again was railway traffic this was the period when they didn't have uh, fuel for for locomotives a lot of trains were forced to 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 sort of close down Uh, had that strategy in 2010 been followed things would have been much better but since uh, being government again nobody uh, took uh, there was no political buy out of this so everything went haywire so the thing is that railway now this is my again my conviction and i am sure uh, railway people would agree with me that railway as a business either we say no like like uh, the, the urban railways you have to subsidize but here in pakistan railways it is my conviction that this can be a financially viable organizations provided provided you run it as a proper rail even today even today so <clears throat> the since it was not being the assets were not being utilized properly and the operations were not being done properly not in a commercial and the business way morally mostly political the deficit is increasing and today it has gone to almost 50 billion and it will keep on increasing uh, because the the expenditures are going up revenues are coming down covid last 7 8 months this was the last nail in the coffin a lot of trains closed down a lot of operations went down the the uh, revenue pictures the Uh, the the earning uh, picture is not very good i hope i could get it but not uh, till today i could get it 
So things are really bad. And what is happening? You must have heard of that book, Waiting for Allah. Here in railways, we are waiting for MN1 to be upgraded. So hopefully it will be upgraded. Next. Next. So I'll just briefly go through what the policy and the institutional and governance issues. Richard touched on that. Uh, basically, I, I personally feel ineffective policy formulation. We need one policy decision from the uh, political leadership. And by the way, policy formulation, being a student of policy, public policy, I personally feel it is the prerogative and the, and the responsibility of the political leadership to give you a policy uh, decision. Now, what can be a po good policy decision is, okay, from today, railways will run as a commercial entity, it will run as a business uh, uh, enterprise, no more favors to anybody, no more uh, uh, sort of facilitating the poor. We will never facilitate the poor. Uh, so that if that kind of approach comes, but what is happening is that the political interference has increased to a great extent uh, these days. And you will see, you, you must have seen these uh, every left and right passenger trains being inaugurated. Then from my point of view, there's a conceptual disconnect between the Ministry of Railways and the Pakistan Railways. The Pakistan Railways people are, I would say till today are professional railway men. The ministry is, I think uh, a little as uh, Dick pointed out, it's a, it's a hurdle there in, in, in uh, running the railways in an efficient way. Then private sector partnership, public-private partnership. As I said, if today the open access policy, it's still a standing policy, the open access regime is still there. There are three, four concessions which have been given out. I wish they could be started, unluckily. Now this is maybe the sixth or seventh year that those people are waiting for the to bring in their own locomotives and their own freight wagons and uh, start their trains. So the railways has been somehow mentally they, they are blocked to the private sector. Contracting out is a separate issue that uh, I don't want to touch upon. That is a very small thing for railways. Then again, human resource uh, capacity building ignored. Nothing has been done. It's the same old story. Yesterday, since now I am at the center of excellence in railway engineering, I was looking at the syllabus of training of the uh, uh, railway people of different categories. Believe me, it is almost 15 years old. Look at where the world has gone and look at what we are doing. Next. Now, major decision introduction of passenger trains. Again, you see these decisions are being taken every day. And every day you're adding to the def uh, deficit and every day you're adding to the miseries of the people by, by, by uh, putting a burden on them because their deficit has to be paid as part of the subsidy, the 50 billion that comes up. And the subsidy, if it, it is never done that way. Subsidy is taken to pay, pay, uh, give you pay and to pay the pension and to, to, to give you the fuel. Two days back, I he's going to call the prime minister to 
sort of inaugurate the pension payment scheme that he has introduced. Now, I was surprised, maybe this is a new pension scheme. I came to know that these are old pensions which people have not received as yet and the prime minister is being called to pay them those pensions. So this is the kind of thing. And overstaffed in relation to number of trains. Again, even with the 75,000 per train, I think we have a very high number. My, my view is lack of professional competence. There are a lot of square pegs and round holes, a lot of engineers pushing files, and a lot of people not uh, doing their own work. Next. Now, the, the, I'll talk of railway economics and traffic issues analysis. This is the actual railways now. The present position is the deficit is 50 billion. Where do you, how do you remove this deficit? The only way of doing it is to have good and proper and efficient and commercial train operations and financially viable train operations. And it can be done, very frankly. If you take the assets and um, take them to those sectors where the, where the revenue is, you can remove this deficit in three or four or five years. The develop, development budget, again, has been uh, reduced to a big extent. Almost it is half now. Why? Because the government doesn't have the money. The development budget of the government has come down from 1100 billion to 650 billion. So where, where, where do they feed the railways? No, they can't. More than 70 of the budgets on pay and pensions already, I've uh, said this. Um, and the amount of train operations has drastically reduced. Again, one COVID and the second, of course, they don't have the money. Next. Next. Now, just this graph, I just want to show you that the operating expenses used to be about 60% of the total uh, railways pie. They have reduced drastically to less than even 10% today. The pensions and the fuel costs have gone up and the operating expenditures have gone down. The money for allocated to operating expenditures at one time here, it, you can see it is 62%. Now it is even less than 10%. I, this 13, even 13 is a little um, more to me. So amount allocated for operating expenses has drastically reduced. So how do you run the trains then? Yesterday, one of the officers was, was telling me that he just does not have any money for lubricating oil. He doesn't have money for, for uh, small gadgets which are required for the operations. Next. So the present position is that Pakistan Railways is carrying less than 4% of the total traffic that moves. So we are doing nothing. And how do you, with less than 4%, how can you make the people happy by reducing the fare? There are no people traveling, actually. The rest of the people are going by road anyway. 80% of your traffic moves by ML1. So 20% of the traffic is moving by two-thirds of the railways, which is ML1, ML2 and ML3, and the subsidiary lines and the branch lines. And, uh, they need a lot of money to, to attract the passengers. Loss-making passenger trains are operated at the cost of revenue-generating freight trains. Now, this is where I say that the mix of passenger trains and freight trains, that mix has to be touched. 
we need to revisit that there should be more freight trains running and less passenger trains running you are not serving the people of this country the deficit is improving uh, is increasing only because the the uh, revenue the the loss making passenger trains are increasing and this is a very important factor from my point of view that the traffic mix needs to be revisited and non commercial stoppages um, just because one of the ministers was here at hasnabad they have now ordered two trains to stop here now this is completely political nothing to do with revenues tariff structure again in trains it is the passenger side the freight side and then you work with the tariff the tariff i personally feel should be should be guided by the market but since we are government here the tariff increases are not there as per per the market uh, uh, rates and uh, we try to help the the poor people by by saying okay let's have a low tariff so tariff structure should be dynamic the the people are willing to pay the freight is willing to pay provided you can have a dynamic tariff structure next now the passenger sector as i said the number of passengers at one time we were 139 million today it is 55 million but here i am not worried why because the passenger kilometers have increased the lead of passenger has increased long distance uh, traffic has increased and there is a big demand for in pakistan railways for the long distance traffic so here we are safe <clears throat> i wish it remains this way we have just long distance travel we don't have the short distance trains they need to be eliminated because the demand in 40 mail express trains is about 80% of the total passenger traffic <clears throat> and about 15% in the 72 intercity at one time we were running about 300 trains per day so you can well imagine what the other uh, besides the 40 and the 72 what the other trains were doing complete loss like we were spending 100 rupees and getting back 2 rupees and still satisfied you're thinking that we are trying to help the people out the poor people out there is no help here and we need to be market oriented next on the freight side had saiwal power plant coal fired power plant not been there let me tell you we would not have been in a good position maybe from 1 million we would have gone to 2 or 3 million but it is only because of saiwal coal that the freight looks good and we have earned a lot of money from from freight traffic it is about 9 million tons now per year and <clears throat> 9 billion ton kilometers for now freight forecasting is the freight there yes it is there and it is increasing and there is an increasing demand for rail transportation efficient rail transportation so once ml1 comes in for 2025 the forecast is seven times of what railways is carrying today now this is not my forecasting this is an independent forecasting done by asian development bank and at times by world bank and even the chinese our forecasting was a little modest but now today like we are carrying about 7 to 8 9 million tons 8 million tons 
uh, for 2025, it is about 35 to 40 million tons, which is very good. And it has to move by rail. If the government wants that the share of railways has to increase from 4 to 20%, this is the only way out of upgradation of uh, ML1. And on the freight side, the operation cost is very small and the revenues are much more. And uh, the demand for long distance bulk freight traffic is always there, whether you move oil or cement or coal, this is the efficient way of doing things. This is the cost of doing business will come down. I personally feel I may be biased, but if you want the economy to, to grow by five to six or seven, without a robust railway, we are going nowhere, especially on the, on the freight side. And that is why in ML1, when we were looking at the mix of trains, it is 70 to 30. In fact, 65 to 30. With 5% coming from land, land utilization and other, other businesses. So the critical factor is here today again, it is availability of locomotives in the freight sector. You must have heard in the news, they are again reviving the Karachi Circular Railway. It's again a political move, frankly. It is a complete loss-making enterprise. The loss-making will be so big that next, I think people have to answer, but maybe because of the Supreme Court or whatever, they're trying to revive that 30-year-old system um, without doing anything to all those factors because of which it is closed. So thank you very much uh, for giving me this time and this opportunity. Um, and I've given you my, my view of what railways is and how we developed over the last 30 years. Thank you, Ishfaqsab. Thank you very much. So Amir Durani, please tell us World Bank has been messing up. IFC has been messing up. Railway is non-existent. We've got the old British system still hanging around. What is your take on the subject? First and foremost, thank you very much. And I want to really appreciate uh, Richard and uh, Ishfaqsab for uh, you know, sort of taking up our offer. I think it's been very informative, but given all the stuff that's been said, I thought maybe it's best for me to reduce myself to only one slide, uh, because I think you've heard it all. Um, but I think before we do that, I want to let's put a context to this. And uh, Richard's partly been hearing me say all this, but Richard, I feel freer now as a denizen outside uh, the realm of the World Bank Group. And uh, basically, look, I mean, one of the things that I've learned from all the people that I've worked in in railways is railway is an introverted organization, especially those that don't cross borders. So basically, it's very difficult for them to see beyond themselves and beyond their own organization. And you've just seen two railway people talk. And I think that one of the things that I will be agreeing and disagreeing, I'll be agreeing with about 80% of what they said, but I'll be disagreeing with about 20%. I think that's, that's the key. Uh, 20%. Uh, railway sector reform, um, and I want to say this very loudly, when people say you need to have the right skills to make Pakistan railway sector work. Well, to be very honest, 80% of that reform does not require you to have ever operated a railway. It requires simple maths and simple understanding of how the business and the political economy of a business works. Second thing, railways are competing today. And as both you heard from Richard, you heard from Ashfaq Saab, that basically today railway is going out and competing with the airlines and also with the long distance bus traveling bus services. Now this is not 
this was foreseen, if everyone remembers, way back in 2004-05, the first business plan that Richard helped prepare, yeah. and Fox, I was well aware of that, which was never actually officially adopted, uh, was basically proved that this was going to happen. Um, now, the other important thing is that, you know, we keep, uh, Richard is still a very nice guy. I don't know why, how he's an Aussie to begin with, because they're not very nice people, at least not to us in cricket, but he's trying to be very nice to us. I mean, he keeps saying, oh, it's up and down and look, it's going up again. Well, look at going up again, even in the TKM and PKM, in the net PKMs, it's still below the 60s. I mean, let's, let's get real about this. So you are, I mean, if I was you, I have an asset which I'm not even able to use as much as I was able to do in the last century. I mean, this is sad. So, and yet we are talking about dreams. I think another important thing, and I will get to that uh, towards the end, uh, but let's start with my presentation because there are three other points and I'll make them towards the end. Uh, next slide, please, quickly. Okay, so I, I'm going to skip all the global railway trends, but all I want to say, go three slides ahead. But one of the things that I think you all need to go is go on the databases, the World Bank database or the world in data, and you'll find out that most of the people who think that we are doing it right by actually ignoring railways, and now that we have roads and now that we have other options, I think are absolutely wrong. Because even today, you see both passenger and freight trains growing up and going very fast in, in the world. Next slide, please. Next slide, next slide, next slide. Next, next. This, slow down, go back. So, you know, basically there are gazillion parameters on which, I mean, I can do an, an, you know, an economic analysis on this, but he, judging by liters of fuel consumed, spillages on hazard cargoes, number of deaths, injuries, carbon monoxide pollution, hydrocarbons, railway is by far the more efficient way. And the more important thing is in a security-minded country like ours, rails don't jump tracks. So by increasing railway traffic, you increase security within Pakistan, something which nobody thinks in the defense and the security and justice sector. Go ahead, please. Next thing is, if you want to know where and how, I mean, even if you look at progressively around the world, railways and, you know, most of the railways, highest amount of passengers carried out in these three countries. And if you look about it, these are the countries moving the most people. Next, please. Again, China and India carry the most passengers. Rail, please. said that. Next, please. I want to get to, okay, let's go on the railways. Next, please. You already heard about it being a medium-sized railway. Next, this is kind of a reaffirmation of what everybody said. But keep here. I think what everyone has said in a roundabout way, and this is a slide Richard may remember from uh, Paul Amos in our collective presentation in 2004. Um, you know, basically the whole issue around Pakistan's railway is that we inherited a main line which used to connect uh, India. While India had 16, 17 railway companies, Pakistan had much fewer. And by the time Pakistan came around, we, it, the, only the main line is what was there to connect what is now uh, so basically, you know, the area around uh, Amritsar, Delhi, uh, basically Haryana and Uttar Pradesh to actually bring traffic down because bringing traffic down from there, especially freight, is cheaper, shorter than taking it directly to even Jawaharlal Nehru port. Mm -hmm. Next, please. I think the other important thing which people haven't done, and by the way, sorry, I did this very quickly. Uh, this is a wide study that we helped finance, we meaning when I was in the World Bank Finance. It's a decade of showing how underinvestment in railways really started. Now, please mark that this is not to scale, 
meaning that on the right side you have 18 is in million rupees and the next is 70 uh, million 70 billion rupees so we are not looking at apples and oranges but at the end of the day what you really find out if you add up everything that you basically started starving the railway sector from the late 80s and and this starvation has continued and you have seen a parallel decline in many things next please and again, Nadeem Sahib, I remember this. I actually was wondering why we wrote Pakistan has railway skilled workers because as uh, Ashfaq Sahib was showing with the attrition, uh, you know, really uh, we have not many skilled railway people left. I mean, railway men maybe, but no railway people. But what it is, is what we have going for us now is it's a monopoly with an aging fleet, archaic law, nobody talks about that a public system that is dragging the opportunities presented by, very rightly pointed out by Richard and by Khatak Saab is the demand and the network. It has its, its pluses. Next, please. So basically to me, uh, there, are, there are like this Venn diagrams really shows three things for me. It's a 19th century railway, which is dragging down architecture and struggling with 21st century challenges. Uh, public governance, big issue. Structure and management, very big issue. Funding framework is an issue. Transport operations, less of an issue. I want to go forward because I have a lot of things. These slides will be available and please ask me why I say this. Next, please. So, you know, all this is happening despite Pakistan being a natural railway corridor. Again, reaffirming what Ashfaq have said. Next slide. And basically, you know, one of the things we keep, uh, I'm not going to talk about the long haul and the change in why PR is ideally suited for this north-south corridor. But one of the things is it's a sixth cheaper than roads are based on last study. So if anyone wants to talk about where we're going to get dollars, well, here's a way to get dollars, move to rail, because it's going to reduce your reliance on the dollars you need for basically bringing in fuel uh, for your road traffic. Next, please. One of the important things, however, is that, and I think R Richard mentioned that, is that while we see, and I mean, this, this slide I snuck in because at the end of the day, Richard said, yes, the passengers fares have been increasing steadily, but I do not think, Richard, that the services have been improving uh, by the same measure, uh, which is because on the passenger rail operation side, as you saw, and I think you demonstrated very well to everybody, that really the quality of service does not uh, you know, the, the, the fixed costs stay pretty much the same, whether it's a very high quality service or a non poor quality service. So there's a very little, there's less differential there. Next, please. Uh, I'll skip this slide, please. Next. Okay, so this is a slide that I want to basically leave my talk on. And Nadeem Sir, from my side, this is the sort of the crux of what we talked about or did not talk about today. And as you remember, this first webinar is about trying to understand what's going on instead of thinking about what does have to be done because it's very closely related. If you don't understand the problem, you can't find the solution. So the first thing is the sector. We never have treated railways as a sector. We've always thought about Pakistan railways. We have never thought about Pakistan's railway sector. I mean, I swear that I have, I have to read one proper uh, something. It starts with Pakistan railways. And well, you know, we talk about roads, we talk about tiers. Second, there is no competition. Now we've been sort of, I, I heard that somebody from the Four Brothers or somebody who has a 
rail operating licenses online and maybe we should give them a chance to speak. But really, it's the absence of competition. Every sector in Pakistan has been open to competition in transport except Pakistan Railways. And this is an outright truth and a core reason of why we are suffering. I'm not going to go on the fringes of why we can do little this, little that. I'm trying to make sure that we understand what the core issues are. If we don't fix, none of the dreams that Hartak Sabar is presenting is going to take place. Our investment in roads over even upgrading the main line. I mean, it is criminal how we have ignored the maintenance. So Ashfaq Sab calls it the deferred maintenance thing. But even if we had just forgotten about roads for one minute and concentrated the last 30 years on maintaining our, our very nice main line, we would be in a much better shape to do a lot more things, including include bringing in competition. Now, railways, again, nobody mentioned this, runs an informal real estate business. It is one of the largest landholders in Pakistan. And this land has been given it to it by the crown as Pakistan inherited it under law for use. Otherwise, it belongs to the provinces. This, I mean, is a, the real business of what Pakistan Railway does today. If you were to ever write a paper on this, is real estate business. The other thing, and the last two points, is the inability to deal with the provinces. Now, everybody has partly mentioned it. Maybe I'm looking at it upside down, but I think this is the right side up that the first thing you need to think about is, well, all these loss-making lines, the, the military east-west lines and everything, I mean, give it to them, let them run it. Why does that have to interfere with our business? We are about to give the, the power wheeling to the provinces. We've already given roads to the provinces since Adam. Well, why, why can't we give some of the railways to the provinces? So it's an opportunity lost, but unless we look at that because it will also solve a lot of this real estate problem because in in times of number of kilometers of and you multiply it by the right of way you know give that to the provinces we don't even need that 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 sort of edict for ourselves last but not least is the muddled up issue between the federal the provincial and the city priorities everyone goes running to pr by tradition Khadaksab just mentioned it right now saying that you know karachi circular is there to run what does it have got to do with Pakistan railways? That is because you go back to point number one. Railway was never treated as sector. It was never open to competition, blah, blah, blah. So I think there are some fundamental things. It's railway, real estate, competition. You get this fixed and you let go of some of the lines. You have a railway because essentially I use the word Protestant. I think railway failed to go on a diet and basically decided not to compete. And I think uh, it's being simplistic, Nadeem Saab, but given the audience, I thought I'd like put some simple ideas into people's heads. Thank you. Thank you, Ahmed, thank you. Now let's get one of the license holders, just like we've got files in plots. I think some of these guys who hold a license are also using the license as a file. Saad Saab, can you please tell us you've held this file for how many years and why are you not operating or what are you doing? Are you speculating on the license? Assalamu alaikum, everyone. I have to say it was lovely hearing this fantastic uh, speeches by everyone. Ashwak Khatak Saab is somebody I tremendously respect. Mm -hmm. He's the one who convinced me to invest in this. Uh, we started the process back in 2010. 11 and i ended up getting the license since 2013 
So I hold two licenses under the name of Fast Track for running uh, freight trains between Karachi and Lahore and Multan and, and Karachi. And I, it was one of the most transparent processes we've ever been through. Ashwak Sah was a great proponent and there was a great chairman railways at that point. And I think after seven years of maybe 200 presentations and at least 100 letters, uh, this is the first time that we now have a chairman as well as a CEO of railways where I see a final push along with the minister who is actually working and finally letting us run our trains. So seven years counting, uh, marriages don't last this long, uh, but we are still uh, moving forward with that. We are still hopeful. Uh, I think, you know, there are a few points I would like to add, which is, you know, when I run my financial model, at that time, uh, dollar was 80 rupees to uh, one dollar. So now at 160, our financial models are all out. We would have been, according to the Ministry of Railways and IPDF calculations, which is Shvaksab had coordinated, Pakistan Railways was going to make 197 billion rupees. Let me repeat that number. 197 billion rupees was what the Ministry of uh, Finance had actually estimated would be the re revenue. And this is not revenue, uh, which I keep trying to explain to Pakistan Railway people, but it's very difficult to make them understand the difference between revenue and profit at times. Mm -hmm. They would have made, because there is no cost associated with this, all this track access was going to do was, we would bring our own locomotives and our own wagons, use the freight, uh, the track and the infrastructure of Pakistan Railways, pay them a track access charge on a gross ton basis, which is higher than what the world actually does it on a net basis. So on a gross ton kilometer basis, so we would be paying for the even the weight of the engine and the uh, wagons. And railways would have made 197 billion rupees just off. From your, just from your operation? Just from the three track accesses. There was three licenses given. One was given to us. One was given to Mr. Halim Siddiqui's company, uh, Pakistan International Container Terminal. And the third was NLC. And these, by the way, Nadeem, are signed contracts, which were signed by the Secretary to the Government of Pakistan, witnessed. So these are valid licenses. There were 20-year licenses with two years to bring into operations. But seven have passed now. Seven have passed. And yes, and and this is, like I said, this is the first time after seven years that I have actually now seeing that the Chairman Railways, the Minister Railways, and the new CEO who's been appointed because he was running the Pakistan Railway Freight, uh, Freight Transport Company, that there is an alignment of interests which says that this is crucial because, you know, let me take one step back, Nadeem. Let me ask you this question. You built the ML1 for $7 billion. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do to repay that debt? How do you do it? Mm -hmm. You yourself and the World Bank have done studies which says that 92% of employment in the Punjab is generated by the private sector. So it's only the private sector who will use these assets pay the railway so you can service the debt. And like uh, Amir Saab said, you can actually bring a container from Karachi to Lahore at 40% of the cost in 40% of the time. So imagine the opportunity cost that businesses will do. 
the World Bank conducted a study. We were all up in arms saying that 2% of our GDP is lost every year because of our electricity crisis. Guess how much they estimate we lose because of uh, transport? Do you have any idea? 4 to 6%. Exactly. So, yes. well, the energy crisis was such a big deal at 2%. Nobody's really ever focused that you're losing 4 to 6% on based on your transport alone. So essentially, I think uh, I'm very hopeful that we will actually move towards uh, this closure because really it's the first time after seven years I have the ability to say that, that there is an alignment and the pressure of uh, ML1 is there as well, that if the private sector, and what I keep trying to explain to railways, and I think they finally understood, was the first cellular license was sold at $6 million. That's it. You know, that's when the first cellular licenses were sold. The second cellular licenses, if you remember, went up to about $250 million. And the last one went out for a billion dollars. This is the same thing. Unless you don't allow the private sector to come in and run a successful model, nobody's ever going to take the risk. So I, I think- mean, Having lost seven years, yes. 13, will you be able to make a profit or will you hand the government a loss? No, I think there are two points which you should understand. So our license actually starts from the day we start running our trains. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we will have 20 years post the first trains that come in. Okay. The second thing, Nadeem, is that who do we um, imagine the other benefits to railways? Not only do we pay them track access, we are the ones who actually used to need to hire from them. So people from railways will get other job opportunities. Our... Uh, what you call maintenance is going to be done by them. Hmm. Our warehousing is going to be done by them. We, even for shunt, uh, shunting, you know, turning the trains around and everything else, we have to use railways equipment and pay them for it. Lastly, I think there was a question which was raised. The private sector is actually very scared of railways. And I'll tell you why. When we were negotiating our agreement, one of the things that we insisted on was that if rail railways can run at a loss, they've always run at a loss. We can't run at a loss, right? So there is a clause in that, that if railway starts pricing 50% of our cost and runs it at a loss, we have the right to sell our equipment to railways then, right? So it's not always that the private sector will be so much more efficient than railways. Railways can really run us into the ground if they want to. So that is just something we had to always think about as well. But like I said, I, I think there's a lot of efficiency in there. I think there is a tremendous amount of opportunity and the private sector is the only people who can actually help repay the debt for ML1. Now that we have everyone here, I do actually have a question to ask from Ishfaq Saab as well as Ahmed Durrani because we were talking about the railways connecting all the way to uh, Iran and Turkey and the larger region that we are one of the few people who do not have the standard gauge. We are still on broad gauge. And if we were going to upgrade to ML1, then why did we actually one day decide to go through with a standard gauge which would connect into Iran and Turkey and otherwise. But happy to answer any questions and any comments on any of this. Believe me, I've spent a long time about it. And our track access charges are actually much higher than what they charge in Europe as well. So I think Ishfaq Sab negotiated really well with us, ran a great process. And honestly, I think we were not smart enough to realize that they overcharged us for it. Okay, fair enough. Uh, please remember these questions. Let me take a few more questions, then I'll come back to the panel. 
Dr. Imtiaz, sir. Dr. Imtiaz. Uh, I'm Dr. Imtiaz Hussain, Associate Professor at DHS Sofa University, and I have a PhD in uh, Railway Vehicle Dynamics. Uh, I have worked uh, in uh, Railway in UK as well as in Pakistan as a research and, and developer. And uh, my question is, uh, one of the major, uh, you know, uh, factor that is uh, uh, the lack of automation uh, in railway in Pakistan. Worldwide, uh, railway uh, companies are investing on, uh, you know, automatic condition monitoring systems. And in Pakistan, still, we have very old system in which uh, we have people inspecting tracks manually. Also, the rolling stock maintenance is manual. So, as we saw in the slides, that almost 70% uh, of the revenue is consumed in the salaries, right? Operational budget is only 10%. So, uh, this could be the one of the major factors that uh, we haven't adopted the technological developments in railway sector. And if we have adopted, uh, we could have much less manpower and hence uh, the expenditure on the salaries would be much lesser. And in that way, we can actually make the railway profitable. Okay, thank you. Is Dr. Miskeen Rahman there? Dr. Miskeen Rahman? No? Okay. Anybody else with questions? Otherwise, I'll go back to the panel. Sorry, I was muted. Asalaamu Alaikum. I'm not doctor. Um, 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 I work on the railway, and um, most importantly in Pakistan Railway. Um, I haven't traveled on Pakistan Railway for a while because I'm in the UK um, for the last 35 years. So I did travel in Pakistan Railway before, and I used to enjoy traveling rather than travel on a bus or um, um, on an aircraft. What my <clears throat> thing is that from my point of view, Pakistan Railway um, have, as uh, one of the speaker did say, have a lot of real estate. That real estate can, and um, even for their own offices and their own things that they can use, um, why has that not, not, not been utilized in, in the last 70 odd years that we have Pakistan Railway? The other thing that to me, the cost of um, getting something is the commission that the people who are getting, at least from, from these um, um, contracts with, uh, with other things, what has the Pakistan Railway, and especially to to Mr. Khatak, who has been in, um, a chairman of Pakistan Railway as well. Um, why has that not been by the government or by Pakistan Railway in itself, the ministry have been abolished? That was from our colonial, colonial, uh, colonial era. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Keen Saab. Shahid, Shahid Saab. Uh, uh, just a few of the, uh, one or two questions. Uh, one, uh, my main uh, contention or my main question relates to the amount of 
property that railway owns. Uh, all the gentlemen who uh, uh, highlighted all the issues and they hi highlighted it very well. But one issue remains, and that now remember that railway is one of the largest landholders in Pakistan. It to in total it owns 167,690 acres. Yeah. Now just imagine the number. Uh, if you compare it, like Okaf is another big property holder in Pakistan, landholder, but its land is in total is 75,000. Acres uh, Pakistan steel holds 18,660 acres. In contrast, railways land spread all over Pakistan is 167,690 acres. Now, uh, just as the gentleman before me asked, uh, how is uh, why is railway always? Uh, I don't know how many people know that, or even if somebody mentioned that railway has a company by the name of Redamco established in 2012, which sells and leases out railway land. Uh, up till now, it has earned, I think, 200 million rupees. Now, why is uh, my question to the steam panelists, uh, especially Ishfa Khatak Saab, is, is, uh, is the railway land being, uh, as part of wealth of what the institution has, is it being properly utilized? Second part of my question, what about railway being in the business of uh, uh, running uh, railway housing societies? Where I'm sorry to say, they, a lot of railway officers, they own multiple plots and even more than multiple plots, either in their name or in the name of their relatives. Uh, what, what would you say about that misuse? And uh, is there any plan, any plan to think about in terms of using this part of your wealth uh, for the betterment of railways or? accruing uh, more profits to railway. Do you, do, does anybody have a plan? Did railway ever had a plan Thanks. to use this thing? Thanks. Thanks. Okay, let me go back to the panel, but let me raise a few questions for the panel again. Richard, can you please describe to us, you said there should be no ministry. How are railways run, say, in Australia and other countries? You mentioned it a little bit, but can you sketch out the proposal that if we, let's say, if by some happenstance, say Allah tells us and we agree that we get rid of the ministry, how can railway be run? Because right now I find it very confusing the way it's being run. And with that, I'll go to Khatak Saab. Khatak Saab, uh, are we, this is even worse than the colonial system, right? We've inherited the colonial system. Instead of improving it, we've kind of um, ruined it because I do remember Long time ago, railway used to be fairly independent of the bureaucracy and the ministries, and railway used to be a self-contained organization. I remember in the times of my uncle, they used to be fairly uh, clear what they were doing. But now, you, from what you are telling me, there seems to be nobody who is planning anything. There's no long-term vision. There's no long-term planning. There's no research. Nobody's really doing, am I right? I mean, is there any research being done in the railways, on the railways? Because I can't imagine any corporate body, and Richard, you'll confirm it, that all corporate bodies have R&D. But in Pakistan, what I see is R&D is totally absent. So nobody is really even looking at the track and seeing whether it's standard gauge or whether it's, uh, you know, broad gauge or whatever, right? And then, Ahmed Durani Saab, please tell me, you have raised this, these issues about, you know, railways uh, being, there's a potential and that we can um, increase the value, etc. But if there are, if the management 
it's totally incapable of taking any decisions. We don't know who's managing railways. Is it the ministry? Is it the cabinet? Is it who, who is managing the railways? Do we have any clarity on this? So folks, with that, I'll go back to, let's say, Richard, can you start, please? Whatever questions there are, can you take them up? Yes, well, of course, it's, um, it's different in every country, but generally, mm -hmm. uh, in many countries, there is the railway is a state-owned enterprise, mm -hmm. and there is generally a ministry of state-owned enterprises. So the railway will be responsible to that ministry for its behaviour and performance as a state-owned enterprise. Now, the Ministry of Transport will set the policy will do the policy settings for the sector and uh, as Emma said you know the first thing is you have to have a transport policy it's not it's no good just having a railway policy you've got to have a transport policy and you've got to have a, a law and an updated law because uh, I think the the last time I saw it the Pakistan railway law was just the um, it was the law from whatever it was, 1890 something. And then- Sorry, what Lord Macaulay left us? That's a law we've got. Which one, sorry? I said, what Lord Macaulay left us? Yes, well, it, I know it was quite as old as that, 1892, I think. Um, but, so the Ministry of Transport is responsible for the policy settings for the sector. But then within the SOE, there will be a shareholding, which is normally held by the Ministry of SOEs, or it might be held, might be two shares, and quite often they're held by different ministries. Uh, and then there is a board, and the board is responsible to the MSOE, to the Ministry of State and Enterprises, for the performance of the railway. And generally the board of the railway, uh, will, it will have an independent chairman and it will have half a dozen people, you know, maybe an accountant, maybe somebody who's um, an independent accountant, uh, uh, engineer of some sort, the general manager, but generally that would be it. There wouldn't be a whole set of five assistant general managers who are also on the board. And then the general manager and, uh, has to report to the board uh, at periodic intervals uh, saying how the railways performed. Now that seems to be the way in which it works in most countries where this is set up. And of course the Ministry of Transport could be the shareholder, but uh, I think it works better when it's uh, Ministry of State-owned enterprises. South Africa's uh, an interesting case, the uh, Transnet, which is the railway there, goes to the Ministry of State-Owned Enterprises. It doesn't go to the Ministry of Transport. So I hope that's sufficient. It, uh, of course, every country is different, but, and they have, you know, sometimes it's uh, uh, state investment organizations that own the shares, this sort of thing but it's always somebody that's well away from generally 
somebody well away from the ministry. And um, I don't, is there anything else you'd like me to? I can't remember whether there are any other questions that you wanted me to uh, give, give a view on. Ashfaq Sahib, can yeah. you please tell us how can we make railways a responsible organization? Because right now it seems it's very confusing and it's just a colonial enterprise at work. As I said earlier, there's a sort of a between the ministry and the chief executive of Pakistan Railways. Um, by that, I would uh, say that the ministry has a role which is a policy formulation role. They should simply stick to that role and let the railways decide how they want to run. Now, every policy has to be strategized. Let the railway have their own strategies according to that policy which the railway gives, the ministry gives. So far as the policy is concerned, that is a very small statement which they have to make, very frankly. From the railway's point of view, had I been in the, in the policy Sir, decision formulation me, level, Sir, can the, for a minute? Let me just run it as a business enterprise. Sir, if you can give me a minute, let me remind you of a you meeting did. of a meeting that we had in the railway minister's office. You were there too, and the railway minister, when he told him that you should do policy only, he said, "Then what is my job? I have to run." <laughs> So, I mean, let's clear this confusion. Let's clear this confusion. Who's running railways? I mean, I want to know where the buck stops. You have. Uh, it finally dawned on the minister at last. I, 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 I must say, Dr. Saab, you have a very good memory. And I remember he said, what am I here for then, if I can't run the trains? So, please so tell that, us. That is the dilemma. That is the dilemma, actually. But it has to be done. Like, like Richard said, just differentiate and cut off from the ministry. Let it be a ministry of transport and let the railway's chief executive, uh, he should then uh, respond to the policy and he should make a strategy. Uh, it should be a commercial strategy, a business uh, kind of a strategy. And, and the perimeters should be there. The ministry should be there checking after every three months or six months or one year, whether the policy is being followed or not. That is uh, thank you. Now, there were certain questions on the land issue. There were three, four questions. One was by Mr. Rehman, by Mr. Shahid. Durrani Saab mentioned it in his uh, discourse. Somehow, maybe I, I differ with them. Actually, we are talking of trains here. When you talk of railways, it is about trains. And it is not rocket science. There are two types of trains. One is the passenger side, one is the freight side. So that is the asset that you have. The land is a very small asset. That asset has been given to you to run your trains. He, the, one of the, the my friends, he talked of that railway has 100, uh, 167,000 acres of land. Now 90% of that land has been given to you to run your trains and run them in an efficient way where you have the railway yards, where you have the terminal facilities, where you have your dry ports, where you have your freight stations, you have your passenger stations and all that for that purpose only. Yes, I agree that beyond that, if some land is available. When I was heading the ML1 project uh, with CPAC, we had put in eight railway stations, just as an example of how you can exploit that land available near some big railway stations. Now, when I say big railway stations, let me tell you, 
Nushera is as good as Nawabsha. Nawabsha is as good as Karachi. Karachi is as good as Lahore. Lahore is as good as Islamabad. So we had just identified eight railway stations. And let me tell you, the Koreans and the Chinese, they have done a remarkable, remarkable work so far as the land utilization is concerned. Especially the Koreans. Now the Chinese are also following that. So I wish the ML1 gets through and we have one or two or three examples, maybe not eight, of land exploitation and land commercialization near bigger railway stations. You see how that is. But let me again uh, reiterate that this will just be five, not more than six, seven percent of the railway's total revenue generation. It has to come from better train operations. If your train operations look good, if the revenue is coming in, if your trains are financially viable, then of course your land ex uh, exploitation of those uh, commercial exploitation of land will look good. But if that is not running, then there are people who will just simply grab your land and your trains will come to a halt. So that is that is my view. Uh, again, Peer Saab, uh, Peer Saab was there. Welcome to him. I've heard him after a long time. I'm sure I'm, I'm, I'm happy that he has a lot of resolve. He has a lot of determination. He has wished it for seven years and he's still optimistic now thinking that it will be done. I wish it will. it is done. If the atmosphere is good, I think open access policy is the way out for this railways. Access policy will allow the private sector to come in a big way with the locomotive. And if they can, if they are successful, uh, I, uh, that is the way out for the railways. Once the ML1 is done, within five years, the capacity of the railway track will increase from 32 trains each way in 24 hours to 170 trains each way. Now, Pakistan Railways, again, does not have the capacity of running so many trains or um, going to the potential, using the full potential of that uh, increased capacity. They just don't have the the, 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 the sort of assets to do that, nor the manpower to do it. So it will be the private sector which will come in a big way. I Now, the, the way I see it, Pakistan Railways will be running maybe a 40, 50 trains on that track. The rest of the capacity has to come and has to be sort of fulfilled by the private sector. So they have a, a good future and I wish they, they, they stick to their, he's waited for seven years. Maybe if he waits for another one year, uh, things will look much better. And I wish the government allows them to run their trains. These are three concessionaires. I was involved in this in a, uh, in a, in a very, very sort of, a, I, I, my heart was there with them. I wish they can run their trains. I, I, I don't know whether Peersab is there or not, but uh, welcome to him. Thank you. That is the way out. Thank you, Shaksab. I, I was hearing all your kind words. Thank you. We have a lot of patience, but my hair has grown white in the process. I think it will grow whiter still, Peer, so just wait. On the picture, it looks black. <laughs> okay. Let's see. Bhava Dr. Bhavani, before I go to Amit Jahangir, Dr. Bhavani wants to say something. Dr. Saab, go ahead. Thank you very much, Nadeem Saab. Uh, I just wanted to share... Uh, what you truly said that our universities are doing nothing regarding any research on um, railway maintenance or conditioning monitoring and all these things. Luckily, uh, two years back, 
uh, higher education commission launched a, uh, is a thematic project called national centers one of them was national center of robotics and automation we at mehran university we submitted a proposal to have a conditioning monitoring lab and especially dr amtiaz who already discussed few things about automation uh, since he he had he returned back of from uh, after his completing his phd and joined mehran um, at that time so we submitted a proposal for uh, having a small lab set up of uh, uh, some uh, conditioning monitoring uh, uh, having emphasis on rolling stock conditioning monitoring and railway track conditioning monitoring and we have developed some of the prototypes as well we got lab it has got website i shared a website there so we are really looking forward it is a very small step in research we have got five six phd's exclusively working on that uh, one of the deep learning algorithms and uh, we developed our own um, uh, some of the sensing technologies for track monitoring we are getting some support even from pakistan railway karachi yard who visited there we have submitted several articles published on that so i would like to request uh, the audience those who are interested to look into it and looking forward any feedback that would help us to expedite or accelerate our research for the national uh, you know achieving some national task thank you thank much. you dr babani ijaz ahmed minhas sahab sahab if i can respond if i can respond to him very quickly hmm. to dr babani ji ji go ahead it will be good it will be good for his years hmm. that the ministry has come up with a triple helix model which in which they are trying to connect the academia the universities with pakistan railways with the government triple helix and they have already approved uh, one of the projects and uh, now they are actively looking at uh, the institutes and universities where people can come and associate with railways and take up research projects or help them out in various uh, sort of uh, uh, research uh, fields or maybe like dr saab is saying in in something new that is going on so this will i think will be good for his years good. he can contact the ministries excellent minas saab thank thank you dr nadeem sir uh, my my query is for the whole panel yeah. uh, i want to know are are the people currently responsible to manage operations of pakistan railway really sensitized about its progress development and reformation and do they have capacity to run it effectively and efficiently thank you good point so amir durani sir go ahead so i mean i'll um, i'll sort of try and answer some of these questions very quickly uh the most interesting one is by pirsab at least in my mind around the gauge but i'll keep that the last i think one of the principles i want to tell you know and I, this is why i would disagree with some of the comments made is the honest broker that you need in any deal right who can tell you what's good or bad for you can never be your money lender and nor can it be you because both interests are you know they you have very different interests so to to make it right you can never be an honest broker and i 
you know, you know that the World Bank has for a long story, you know, sort of sold the story around it being an honest broker. It isn't. Similarly, ADB, similarly Chinese, similarly Korean, giving all these feasibilities. They want to push their own money and their own products in, in here. I mean, that's as blunt as I can be about this. So we need to find a way to really rethink, uh, as you said, local research. I think the other important point on land, and I want to come to the land thing very quickly because I think Shahid is absolutely right. Uh, even if uh, the land, 90% of it, is for railway purposes, the enormous amount of land that lies around what the lines that are not used, we've already talked about them, barring the main line, and even if we call three main lines, ML1, 2, and 3, you still have plenty of land left around, which, by the way, is the bane of corruption and basically what I call lethargy in the railways, which people don't want to talk about, because that's really where why we want to bring the land about. Also, this uh, leasing railway land, to, uh, this department that's been created, is actually giving it off in very low rates. Now, keeping, uh, for example, the, 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 the tariff submerged for, for example, the, the freight is also in connivance with, the, with some of the people. I mean, I know because I've run goods for four years now myself after abandoning my logistics company last year because you know the thing is you you can pretty much get from rails what you want if you pay the right person uh so i think it's going to be kind of fun when the private sector finally breaks in but i think on the, the other two points very important uh, people mentioned about you know research and cross-sector studies i think there is no honest market study on railways available in pakistan there has no comparison been done since 2004 and 5 I'm not saying that we were very honest, but at least uh, tried to make an attempt with Paul Amos on trying to understand what the freight rates and how the land transport, how demand would shift from land to rail. Otherwise, you can pretty much do as much daydreaming as you want. So I think there's a very big need for an overall cross-sector and transport analysis on demand, both on the goods and passenger sides, and on, then looking at the fares and how they will react. Um, the other thing, Second last is that we don't talk about the infrastructure deficit. Even if you get ML1 in place, you still need to shed weight because somehow the whole railway law needs to be rejigged. The whole railway setup needs to be rejigged, as Dick said very rightly, because just the infrastructure deficit, which if you call is rehab plus improvement required plus capacity addition, I mean, it's, who's going to pay for this? Nobody. So the thing is, the railway is going to be saddled with that plus pensions. Last, I think, just to let you know why I keep saying there is no research, and I'm not mimicking you, Nadeem Saab, but on railways, really, there is no local research. Nobody in railways thinks about this. The question on gauge. Now, if I was to just be able to share the screen and show you the map on gauges, why the hell would you build ML1? Why would you be part of CPAC? Why would you be thinking or even talking about BRI? if you could not carry the same gauge across from China, through Iran, through Turkey, all the way to the rest of the connected continent. I mean, that's the Eurasian dream. And here we are going to build up ML1 on you know, our traditional gauge. Now, people, there's a long discussion around this, so I hope, Pirsab, you can raise and ruffle some feathers because I think I, I, I realize you have a lot of money. You do films. I saw you on the film seminar, and now you're on this. So I think you should use that now to really start some research and shake them and say, if you want to do ML1, let's get the real standard gauge back in so we can get connected. I mean, why not? 
because you're essentially throwing away the rest of Pakistan's railway when you get into rail level one. So might as well abandon the old old uh, rail gauge. Anyhow, this is an interesting discussion. Adeem Saab, I want to stop here and give it back to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, folks. Thank you very much. I am still wondering, why do you need a new law? And why do you need a new transport policy? Can Richard and you explain that to me? I've never understood this, this sort of huge hunger for law and policy that de development practitioners have. Can I just quickly take that, uh, Richard, before you on the law part? The U.S. I mean, Richard, development law. Richard, Richard I would also like to comment on this. Please go ahead. The law is never required unless you already have a law. Right? To me, the fact that just, just dropping a railway act and saying it no longer applies is all we need to do. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to have a railway act that is screwing up life in 170 different variations, and there's a whole write-up on this, then you need to change it. Right? So I'm not saying get a new law study done. All I'm saying is either abandon it because you already have accepted and inherited all those laws. Mm -hmm. And they're screwing everything up from operations to who owns the land, what you can do with it, what you can't do with it, who can move from here to there, et cetera, et cetera. There are such minute details in these laws that they're not even funny and not even applicable. It's like a bit like the for the canals, you have something about always needing a boatman. If you open up your motor vehicles to attack a law of 65 and 69, you will realize that you still need to carry a certain kind of lantern in your bus if you are to operate in Lahore. I mean, come on. So the thing is either get rid of it, all the laws, that's why I'm saying need a law. Okay. Ashfaq sir? Ashfaq sir? You wanted to say something? Richard, go ahead then. Why don't you say something? Why do we need a law and why do we need a transport policy? Can I, can I just add uh, one or two words? Yeah, go ahead, Ashfaq sir. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Can you hear me? Ah, we can hear you. Fine. Go yeah. Ahead. Uh -huh. Okay, what I'm saying is that the Railway Act, yes, it is very old, but frankly, I have looked at it from different angles and I don't see anywhere where it stops you from go going into reforms or going into restructuring or going into open access policy. Very frankly, it doesn't stop you from doing anything. The railways, when it came into being... Next it was, webinar can be on railway law. Let's do that. Yes, we can do that. And then secondly, on this uh, sort of uh, this uh, standard gauge and the, the story of gauges. Very frankly, the gauge is not an issue anywhere in the world. You can, you can shift from one gauge to another gauge. It just takes less than one hour for a train to go from one gauge to another gauge or the loaded goods from one train to another gauge. That's Richard what you want to avoid at border surgery. That's what you don't want to do Why at border. You are missing the point what about availability of equipment. No, no, no. no. It's not about equipment. The, the broad gauge equipment is available everywhere in the world. You just have oh. to order it. It takes, it takes 18 months, whether it is a broad gauge or a meter gauge or a standard gauge. Hmm. Now on, on ML1, this is an upgradation of the existing system. If you hit ML1 with broad gauge or the standard gauge story, let me tell you the entire railway will have to be closed for the next five, six years in Pakistan. Very, very clear. I don't want to go into more details of this. But you remember gauge the has never you been an issue. China? Gauge has never been an issue. China? If you go from China into Russia, 
there's a train which goes from china into russia it takes half an hour to change the gauge sir the biggest problem ashwat sir on between on khorgos between china and russia i'm sorry is the interoperability it is the hugest problem you can read the world of railways about this this is a big plan kazakhstan decided not to change the rail gauge to the chinese and they are stuck so i mean this this changing of goods from one point to another is something you never do if you want in a proper rani sahab picking up a picking up a container from one train to the other will take not more than half an hour for the entire train Sir, the best ports do seventeen moves an hour. The amount of money that you're going to spend, the amount of money you're going to spend, or changing of gauge will go into billions and billions and billions of dollars. Who's going to pay okay, for it? Okay, explain to me. Here we are not having eight billion dollars for ML one. Changing into into the, the standard gauge will cost you another fortune. But sir, how will you pay for ML one? Seven billion dollars loan that we are getting. will we need another 20 imf programs to sort that out i mean how will we oh, pay for it the thing is we we you we've been looking at the financials very closely the chinese were willing and they are still willing to help you out the rates will be very low they will be much lower than what they are giving on the nha if the railways cannot cannot be run financially in financially viable manner the operations cannot as i said earlier if the mix of trains goes from 30% uh, from sort of passenger into 50% passenger then you will never be able to repay it but if you remain a freight train uh, uh, the the main stays your freight train operations and the 30% is at the passenger side you will be able to repay the entire loans the interest on the loans the commitment fee the management fee within 12 years of operations and the chinese are willing to give you a good free time for for railways so i don't see anything any problem if you because there is no fiscal sir there is no fiscal review sir ji ishwak sir there is no overall macro review of how these loans will be paid back you are looking at it only from a very applied micro railway feasibility point of view i am looking at it from the total rail operations point of view whether the operation whether the the system will be able to repay that loan or not yes we will be able to repay the traffic is there the freight is there the passenger long distance is there the tariff is good enough and the tariff was 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 sort of uh, modeled in the most modest way possible ashwak sir may i just i don't want to bore you with details but national highway authority did the same thing and started borrowing from adb world bank and cdls do you know how much loan it has to pay today i mean they have not been able to pay back those who started charging tolls 15 years ago sorry 20 years ago so can you imagine the fiasco we are heading into if we believe what you read on that paper it's very it's very difficult to understand there is no operating transport sector Bansham, a parallel is national highway authority i'm talking of the railways only the railway ml1 project is a financially viable project which can repay itself within 12 years starting from 12 years and you will be ending up with a, a profit after 12 years provided you run it as a railway and there is no political interference the, the entire talk that we did but uh, katak sahab you know i used to have this debate with uh, 
वो अपना क्या कहते हैं डॉक्टर आसिम इन द रिमेंबर ही यूज टू से वी शुड गेट एल एन जी फास्ट एंड आई यूज टू से वेट अंटिल यू फिक्स योर गैस सिस्टम नाउ यू गॉट एल एन जी एंड आई डोंट वॉन्ट टू वरी अबाउट the mechanics of the lng but right we are, it's we are running at a huge deficit we are supplying the lng to the households and we will never be able to repay it and we are getting into a further and further mess so i think this question about changing the system before we do anything adventurous is very important the problem is that we've got 70 year history of hanging on to colonialism we are hanging on to lord macaulay lord macaulay lives lord macaulay still rules us we live like lord macaulay we do everything like lord macaulay i keep saying that again and again we don't want to change lord macaulay system in fact we made it fiscally more irresponsible so with that let me just let richard have the last word and then we'll get we'll do it again we'll do it again inshallah go ahead richard all right well, this is only the first webinar please remind everybody we are going to Nadeem, talk let me also add one two words after that if you can sir okay let me just very quickly just make some very quick points uh so yes about the law i'm sure it 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 probably is workable because it was drafted at a time when there were private operators there were many multiple railways and so at that stage it uh, it allowed the sort of system and the sort of operations that people are talking about these days but i think it's um you could streamline it considerably and make it much more of an enabling law so that it didn't have a whole set of things in it which are really about i mean it's the sort of thing they used to put into laws in, in those days about fines for putting your feet on the seat and all this sort of stuff and you can deal with that through um regulations uh, generally um as to the gauge the only thing i can say is that there have been various studies as to what the best gauge should be and uh 5 foot 6 is probably one of the best gauges in terms of uh, basic economics and that i think was why um it was adopted at the time and as far as trans transshipping uh, uh, containers is concerned I have actually been to Horgos and I've stood there and watched a train get uh, transshipped and they do do it incredibly fast uh the train I saw from when it appeared over the border from China it was ready to move on in 2 hours they'd shifted the whole 42 uh containers had gone from uh, uh, from 48 and a half to um to 5 foot just like that it, of course it's all automated it's purpose built and so on but uh, i don't regard transshipment uh, as an absolutely fatal flaw in terms of uh, moving stuff around um it's an uh, it's a nuisance but it's it's not that big a nuisance i don't think and so i i really would be very cautious about changing the gauge even though it it is probably going to be the main it will be the main artery but you'll still have transshipment and it will be a pain in the neck when you've got lots of transshipment uh, onto your main deck but one thing i that does surprise me is that what i read was that um, 
the initial stretch to be done with ML1 was uh, Lahore up to Peshawar. And you'd think that uh, if you were going to do it, you'd do the bit which has got the most traffic, which is Lahore to Karachi. Good point. And uh, that seems strange to me, you know, because it's expensive. Lahore to Royal Pindi, it's it's expensive what they're proposing to do, you know, new new, new tunnels and all the rest yeah. of it. But anyway, look, I think um, I think I don't dare give any other opinions on any other topics given. No, no, no. no. <laughs> no but Dick still has to come back to Pakistan. Be careful. I mean, the World Bank will kick him out. <laughs> we can have another webinar on ML1. We will definitely. Let's do that. Let's because that's very important. I think you're right. I think so. Yes, absolutely. We will inshallah do that. Saad, you want to do some last thing before we close? Uh, I think it got covered, but um, I just think that given where we are today, Nadeem, this really uh, does the future of Pakistan. And the numbers I wanted to leave everyone with when we talk about 4 to 6% of the GDP, on a nominal basis, that's about 11 to $16 billion a year. On a purchasing power parity basis, that's about $45 billion a year. Transportation. Let me ask you, after uh, what happened to Royal Palm, are you keen on getting into bed with the railways? Yeah, uh, Nadeem, I think there is nothing you can do in this country uh, where the government is not environment. Durrani Saab was very kind, but I can tell him that Pakistan is a great way to also lose money. You know, you, as you know, it is a place where uh, to open up one cinema in a working mall, I need 17 NOCs, which are... Hmm. So you can imagine the amount of uh, hoops and fires I have to jump through. But look at, you know, take a step back and Nadeem, think about this, that this is a zero cost project to Pakistan railways. Railways has zero cost. They have the uh, infrastructure. This is why Ashwak Saab was so keen about it. They have idle capacity. It's, it's a zero cost uh, to additional cost to railways. And then they make 197 billion over 20 years. And it's been seven years. They still haven't, all the lawyers' fees, all the capital, everything else is just stuck there from our perspective, right? Uh, so it is something where I think it is the future. I wanted to leave everyone when they look at these numbers to remember that if projects like this, infrastructure projects do take place, and by the way, one truck can cause 42,000 uh, cars damage onto the highway if it's overloaded, and we do overloading all the time. So this is such a better way. And the last point to make about this, and I don't want to berate it, is that the increase in yearly traffic is enough that no truck owner will get out of work. Just the increase in traffic and volume in Pakistan is enough to account for not only the private sector coming in, but in addition of railway uh, trucks in Pakistan as well. Okay. Well, folks, thank you very much. As uh, Ahmed said, this is the first of our railway webinars. I think it's a very important subject. We need to do a lot more about it. A large amount of our capital is stuck in it. It's running a 50 billion deficit, as you as you saw. So we've got deficits everywhere. And uh, unfortunately, 
our academia seldom or if ever looks at this subject, seldom if ever discusses it. So we at Pied really want to elevate this discussion. We want to bring in again, Ashfaq Saab, we will bring you in for the ML1 discussion. Richard, we'll bring you in to talk more about transport policy. We've also talked, Amir, we've also talked to the uh, to the logistics people, Babar Bedat, we must get a logistics webinar going too, because I think these are important issues that nobody talks about. But in the end, but in the end, I'm sorry, it all boils down to one thing. Lord Macaulay died a long time ago. We did get independence. But unfortunately, in our heads, we are not independent. We are still living in colonial times. And that's why I keep talking about Mayo Gardens and GOR, et cetera. The symbols of colonialism are very much there. And our colonial babus are sitting there and they don't want to move the needle at all. So you've got this mess of a framework where nobody knows. We talked to discos. They said the ministry runs them. We talked to railways. Ministry runs them. We talked to wheat. They say ministry runs them. Nobody knows who's running them. And the cabinet takes decisions, detailed decisions, to the extent of appointing a lineman. This nonsense. Even the Brits didn't do. You read William Dalrymple, he says that 35 people sitting in somewhere in England in one room ran the East India Company, but they didn't run it like we are running the country. I don't know when we learn, but we'll try our best to educate people. But our students and universities should wake up. Unfortunately, they're not waking up. All they want is a job and do nothing. Thank you, folks. Thank you very much. I thank all of you from the bottom of my heart. Amir Durrani, thank you for arranging it. Amir Durrani, we will talk about the next webinar with you soon. All the best. You have to explain to Richard what who Macaulay was. I'm sure Richard knows. I'm sure Richard has some faith. I, I don't think he hasn't got the full... Richard, you know Lord Macaulay, right? I know Lord Macaulay very well indeed. Indeed. And... Okay. okay. He wrote, mo he wrote most of our laws and we hold them sacred. We never change them. That's the problem. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much, Richard. Thank you, Ashwak Sab. Thank you, everybody. Khuda Hafiz.